So Peter and I are excited to be joined by Tori Wynn today. Tori, if I read from her Twitter profile, was an instructional design expert or is an instructional design expert and accessibility lead, formerly with the University of Missouri, Kansas City. But we understand that some congratulations are in order as she recently joined academic partnerships. So Tori, welcome. Hi, thanks so much for having me. Oh, you're welcome. So tell us a little about, little about you beyond your Twitter profile. Um, yeah, absolutely. So I have been an instructional designer for, um, I think, about six years now. Sort of fell into instructional design on accident, like most instructional designers do. My story is not unique in that way. Um, I actually thought that I would potentially become a PhD in English literature and be a faculty member. Um, I grew up surrounded by higher ed because my dad is a faculty member, has been my whole life. Um, so that was originally my plan, uh, sort of fell into online learning as an adjunct um, and graduate teaching assistant. I had the opportunity to design some online courses and fell in love with it, fell in love with the instructional design department at my first university um, and really just loved it and loved working with the faculty members. Um, so I've been doing that since I started at Wichita State, moved to um, the University of Missouri, Kansas City, like you mentioned, and I'm now with Academic Partnerships. Um, and my role with accessibility has changed over time. Um, that sort of happened because um, at the time I was with Wichita State, they did receive a letter um, from the Office of Civil Rights on behalf of the student. So they had some um, different things that they needed to do when it came to accessibility. So we had a lot of training, and a lot of work in that. Um, I think that was probably one of the reasons that the University of Missouri, Kansas City was interested in me um, when I was hired, since they had a lot of work to do in the area of accessibility. Um, and it's something that I'm really passionate about. I teach some accessibility courses for the online learning consortium. I'm actually teaching one um, as we speak. So um, it's just been really great. I love the instructional design community and I'm excited to talk to you guys today. Well, thank you for sharing your backgrounds. I have to admit a number of things came up that are very much resonating with me because our college, Goldie Beacom College, is actually going through a transition as we learn, A, to teach online because we had no fully online courses before COVID-19. We had a handful of hybrid and that was it. Okay. Um, so on one hand, it's terrible, of course, that we're going through this very fast, crazy transition, or it's very surprising and unexpected and all of those things. On the other hand, I was like, yeah, I'm using my PhD in instructional design and I get to use the things I finally learned how to do. Yeah. Um, so it's been a little bit of a joke in the department. Um, but I'm curious, when it comes to accessibility, because I believe I remember reading somewhere when we, I was looking at your bio, you have some involvement with Quality Matters as well, I think. Um, well, so I am a master reviewer for Quality Matters and have been doing, you know, reviews for quite a few years now. Um, helped them put a couple of resources together when they were creating um, listservs for, and in particular for um, accessibility. So I do a lot with that. Um, I haven't really been super active in the Quality Matters community within the past um, year or so, just because of my personal transition. I do a review here and there. I mentioned it because we just signed with them about a couple weeks ago. So we're, we're working on developing an online template and all of those things. And um, I was wondering if you had any tips, and I understand this is a very large question for a very small amount of time, but when it comes to creating a, an accessible template, are there a handful of things that you would say that template has to include? Well, when it comes to accessibility, I think the easiest thing that you can think about when it comes to it is that it's easier to build it in than it is to bolt it on. So if you have older course content or older courses within your learning management system and you're trying to make those accessible, that is like climbing a mountain. 
But if you start from a fresh template or start with fresh course content, it can make it a lot easier to make that content accessible. So if your institution is actively trying to create a template with accessible features, that's great. Taking a template you had used previously or maybe like PowerPoint templates or Word document templates, um, that can make it a lot more difficult, um, you know, and especially now that accessibility is such a huge part of web design um, and our learning management systems. The tools that we have at our fingertips to help make content accessible just so much better even than they were two and a half years ago. Um, so just always taking the time to build accessibility into your workflow is also going to be key. So make sure before you save a document or um, maybe a PowerPoint slide that you just check that accessibility before you exit out of the document. If you make that part of your workflow, it's going to save you so much time in the end. Thank you for that. I so much agree with the it's easier to build it correctly, so to speak, than try to fix it after the fact. Um, when I came to Penn State years ago, we were also in a similar situation of needing to change all of the content for World Campus because some things were not accessible. Um, we've recently signed on also, we're doing a lot of onboarding right now with the course ARC, which I'm not sure if you're familiar with that. Um, it's going to be used as our template system within the LMS. So since we weren't ready to switch to a new LMS, we went with one that was fully accessible compliant to a couple of the different standards. Right. So we're excited to use that because it doesn't mean we don't have to stop where we can stop checking things, but at least we will have an accessible LMS component when we didn't before. Yeah, that's really fabulous. Are there any things that you've run into recently with the transition with remote working? I guess, first of all, I should say, was it a transition for you? Were you working face-to-face -face before? Yes, it was a transition. Um, so originally I was, a, you know, a traditional campus employee. I was there eight to five each day on campus. Um, my office at the University of Missouri, Kansas City was on the fourth floor of the library. So I got to see students every day, which was really great. Um, and now, you know, in the midst of COVID, I actually transitioned to a fully online position anyway. So this is now my new normal. Um, which is pretty interesting. But the fact that the company that I work for has a lot of remote employees, they were really well set up to facilitate that transition and make that easy. Um, for example, I came home one day and all of a sudden there was a laptop sitting in front of my front door. So like they were ready for me to come on That's board. Nice. <laughs> yeah, so, so that was really great. Um, you know, the tradition or the transition for me has only been difficult because I live in a one bedroom apartment. Um, so I feel, and coupled with quarantine, I feel very trapped in my space. But other than that, it's, it's pretty great. You know, even though I was traditional on campus, I spent most of my day sitting in front of a computer screen. So that hasn't really changed. Yeah, I use Zoom a lot more frequently and I'm getting really used to like being able to see myself during meetings, which yeah. is sort of a weird transition. Yeah. Um, but other than that, I don't feel super disconnected. Um, I still have the ability to use a lot of messaging software to stay connected with the people that I work with. Um, I feel like we're all more willing to share photos of like our dogs and our partners and our children. Yeah. <laughs> so um, that has actually been kind of nice because I feel like I get to know people a little bit better. Cool. I'm curious when it comes to meetings, because there's been all kinds of memes online about what it's like to have remote working during COVID and all of the meetings and things like that. Everything from kind of the funny, which is more of like the men who decide they want to look dapper all day long with wonderful outfits that they do to <laughs> the fact that we're meeting like every 30 minutes all day long. And it's like Zoom fatigue. What have you experienced? I have definitely experienced Zoom fatigue, especially at the beginning. I was doing a lot of onboarding. So that's just generally a lot of meetings anyway. So that that was sort of exhausting at first. 
Um, but now it, it feels a lot more natural. I think maybe I'm just even becoming more used to it um, than I was previously. So it doesn't wig me out as bad as it used to. Um, but by the end of the day, when it hits five o'clock, I'm ready to shut my laptop. Yeah. You're like, I'm done. It's been good. I did it a full day, despite the fact that I'm in front of my computer. And it's kind of the same. So I get that. My, my experience was similar. And I was also in a physical library. So it's, it's kind of the same thing as before, just less people other than my husband. So yeah, <laughs> yeah, absolutely. I can't peek over like a friend's cubicle and like ask them if they want to go to lunch. But I can still send them a message and, you know, share jokes with them. So it's not totally lost. Cool. Peter, did you want to transition with some of your questions? Sure. Um, I would be sort of curious because it sounds for you, it was a very sort of seamless transition in a way. You were already mostly set up for this kind of thing. And now you went to fully remote and, you know, you, you have the technology equipment, you kind of have a space where you can work. So that was rel relatively simple. Mm -hmm. uh, as somebody, especially who has worked with accessibility and those kind of requirements for learners and teachers, what have you been seeing on the other end of sort of the, the Zoom call, so to speak, in, in the sense that, the, the students and the faculty that you have seen make this transition as well. What have some of the challenges been that you've been seeing in terms of, you know, everybody being now forced to fully adapt online everything, right? So online video, online textbooks, because we can't ship textbooks to students. And especially for students who may not have access to technology or who have special accessibility needs one way or another, what have some of the biggest challenges been that you think are still kind of being worked on and haven't been fully solved right now? Well, something that I was actually talking to some coworkers about recently is the definition of correspondence courses and how we're sort of running into that all over again when it comes to distance learning, um, especially looking towards the fall semesters. You know, so many courses were able to pivot um, in the spring and make a lot of concessions with their courses and their assessments. Uh, but when we look towards the fall, you know, what do those concessions look like? If students live in remote areas without internet access, how do they access their courses? How are they going to complete their content? And for some of them, the answer would be that traditional correspondence course model. And, you know, a lot of courses are not certified to be correspondence courses. So how do we tackle that issue? Um, and then, of course, like you just mentioned, there's also the issue that a lot of students may not have access to the same tech. I was able to make this transition really easily. I had computer screens at home. I had a free desk I could use. But for families with one laptop and everyone is expected to be working from home or taking classes online, I mean, how do you balance that? And how do schools provide that sort of hardware for students to get on board with their classes and get their coursework done? And so. I know that look that solution looks different for every institution, especially based on their student populations, but I'm really curious to see what, how the definition of correspondence courses changes, even if it's over just the next couple of months, and how the institutions with hardware issues or lack of hardware, how they're going to tackle that as well. I don't know if there's going to be grants available. I don't know if the institutions are expecting faculty members to mail content out to students. You know, it really, it might look different depending on what you teach and where you are. Yeah, that's a great, actually, that's, that's an interesting thing because I don't think we've had anybody mention correspondence courses, mm -hmm. which is sort of a very old school term in, in this very modern approach to everything. But it, it is a very good point that that may be a useful tool. Uh, Sim, on, on that kind of note, as you know, your colleagues were preparing, I guess, for fall, and fall is still unknown for a lot of institutions right now, what that's going to look like. Were there some sort of plans coalescing as to, you know, what 
education would even look like for your institutions and your students? I mean, would it be in classroom hybrid? What would a classroom even look like? What were the options being considered? Because all schools are kind of looking at it very differently these days and it's hard to see common trends yet. We're still almost too early in the summer for this. Sorry, I lost you. <laughs> no, it's okay. I'm glad we got you back. Um, I'm not sure at what point we lost you. Peter was mentioning that he was curious if at your previous institution, if they had gotten to a point where they had decided what the fall might look like. And I understand that at different schools and different sizes, there might be differences by college, differences by department. What was kind of in the works when you were leaving? Um, so when I was leaving UMKC, they weren't really sure what fall was going to look like. Um, I still do adjunct for them, so I can tell you from an adjunct instructor perspective what's happening for fall. Um, I do know that for fully online classes, the, the situation doesn't really change. Um, but for face-to-face -face and hybrid courses, the changes are going to be that the school year is going to wrap up. Um, before the Thanksgiving break. So if there are major assessments or major things that students, students need to complete, they have to have that completed in a face-to-face -face format before Thanksgiving hits so that after Thanksgiving, students don't return to campus and they have that really extended break. Um, I've seen that practice at a couple of different institutions. We're doing so that know, too. Yeah, so that's pretty mm -hmm. common. Um, I, I'm curious to see if a shutdown happens before that how we transition or pivot so um but who knows really what's gonna what it's gonna look like i think as much as possible if faculty members can try and get their courses into some sort of hybrid format so that that transition is a little bit smoother if they have to move fully online i think that's a good practice but at umkc at least that is optional faculty can still plan on a fully face-to-face -face mm -hmm. format um, although it's strongly encouraged that they have a backup plan or they try and move hybrid where and when they can. Interesting. In, in terms of, you know, long term, when eventually COVID-19 hopefully gets resolved and we're back to regular classrooms and, you know, face to face, what do you think are some of the kind of like long term takeaways as an instructional designer? of techniques or changes that you would like to see being carried forward anyway, even when everything is back to the way it used to be, that, that kind of developed during this time as a response to the emergency, but you think they're good developments and you would like to see them actually continue? I think that there are two major barriers to faculty not being interested in moving their courses online currently, and one of them is just the general fear of technology. Um, a lot of them have had to confront that fear head on in this situation. You know, they would have never attended a Zoom meeting, but when there's no other choice, there they are in Zoom. And turns out, you know, you can still meet a lot of meeting objectives on a Zoom format. So while you're missing that face-to-face -face connection, it is still a totally reasonable solution. I think the second fear is that students can't learn in an online environment. And, you know, there's been years and years of research to prove that that's not the case. But if you never took an online class as a student or maybe had a bad experience 15 years ago as a student, you might not feel comfortable moving your content online. And again, I think this is another fear um, that instructors have had to face head on during COVID. They, you know, for some, hopefully, the experience was positive and they found that their students really could learn and they were comfortable and it was a success for them. I know for others, especially with really challenging subject matter, like chemistry labs, 
you know, it just reinforced that fear that online learning isn't an adequate solution for them. Hopefully, you know, they've identified areas where they can use their LMS or they can use the technology to amplify their classrooms um, and make it a really successful learning, learning environment for their students. Um, so that would be the one thing that I would hope is that, you know, while this transition was really uncomfortable, they were able to see a little bit of that silver lining. Yeah. They got comfortable with that technology. They got comfortable transitioning their content into an online format um, and it might open the door. I could be wrong. It could go totally the other direction and it, you know, it just reinforced their fears and they absolutely hated it. But the optimist in me wants to believe that, you know, they can find that silver lining. When, we when are this on was the happening, same that. <laughs> when this was happening in the spring, at, at the very beginning, when you had to kind of transition and help everybody transition uh, to online, were you fighting a lot of this kind of myth that a lot of these myths that you know online learning doesn't work and online classes don't work and they're somehow worse? Because it feels like part of the challenge is really overcoming that. There's a lot of sort of disinformation or like one student. 10 years ago had a really bad experience and yet somebody really remembers that despite the fact that nothing bad has happened since then and everybody's really stuck on that and overcoming those kind of biases is, has been sort of difficult at times to actually help transition everybody because everybody kind of spreads it. Nobody has any sources and yet everybody's heard that, oh my God, it's so awful to learn and teach online and but nobody knows why. Yeah, I find that when... I have that conversation a lot with faculty where they're just afraid and I understand the fear and I understand that there is a lot of misinformation out there about online learning. And I think honestly, if you've not been a student in an online format, it's really hard to believe that you, your students could learn. Um, I've had the benefit of being an online student before and being an online instructor and I see my students reach those objectives and I see the successes with my students. So I believe in it. I know that it works because I've seen it happen and I've been that student and seen it work for me. So when you're an instructor who's never been in that position and you're very comfortable lecturing in front of a classroom and delivering, you know, exams face to face, it can be really uncomfortable. So a lot of my job as an instructional designer is to help make them comfortable in an online setting, giving lots of examples of success, um, lots of examples of how you might make your course work in an online format. Um, and just, yeah, get that comfort level there. I think empathy is also really important in those conversations and understanding that it is super uncomfortable the first time you move content online. And because on good online courses at least are iterative and you're changing them all the time, knowing that the first time you put something online, it's not going to be perfect. Um, and understand that it is a really long process to get you know as close to perfection as you can for your classes. So. Definitely seen those conversations, definitely understand overcoming a little bit of that bias when it comes to online learning. Um, and I'm curious to see where the bias shakes out after all of this calms down, you know, even a year or two from now, where is the conversation and how are people feeling after being pushed um, into the deep end here? Well, that's a very good note for us to close on because I know that that's a conversation that's continuing to happen on our campus and on many other college campuses, especially when we're trying to remind people that emergency remote teaching is not the, the gold standard for online learning and those things are different, right? So, well, Tori, thank you so much for joining us today. We really appreciate you taking the time. It was nice to get to know you. Yeah, absolutely. Thank you. Thanks.